Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. It was a cool uh, and dark night. The leaves were rustling in the trees as a group of men walked silently into a clearing in the garden. It's the night before Jesus is crucified. He takes them a little way and then leaves the disciples to stay and pray while he goes a little further. Peter snores gently as Jesus comes back. Jesus wakes him and said, So couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a piercing analysis from Jesus. Not just of what he sees in front of him, but what is about to happen. Earlier that night, Jesus had predicted his arrest and that his disciples would abandon him. And Peter, as he seemed to do, hits back at Jesus. He says, even if everyone falls away because of you, I won't. I'll never fall away. And Jesus gently lets him know not only will he fall away, But he will uh, deny Jesus three times. So Peter doubles down. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. Peter wants to obey Jesus. His spirit is willing and directed towards God, but the desires of his flesh are pointed in another direction. And so Peter does not do what he wants to do and ends up doing what he hates. He can't stay awake and praise. He ends up attacking a Roman soldier with a sword, He abandons Jesus and then later denies him three times, all as Jesus predicted. Mike named last week the tension we're talking about the desires of the flesh. And that is out of the three ancient Christian enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, there is one that I carry a measure of responsibility over. The devil is an external force, but the flesh is an internal force, internal desires that seem set against the desires of God. My desires that are set against the desires of God. And when I give in to them, I contribute in different ways to the broken systems of this world. I do that. I sin. I give in to the desires of my flesh. No one else is to blame. But I hate it. It's not me. But it is me. It's me, but I want more than anything to live in a way that pleases God and not the desires of my flesh but I find that I'm pretty powerless to do anything about it. Regardless of my best intentions, regardless of how hard I try, I can't fight the desires of my flesh by sheer willpower. And so I can totally sympathize with Peter. I'm not sure that I would have fared any better. What about you? I wonder if you resonate with this tonight. Why do we do what we don't want to do? And what can we do about it in a way that is lasting? How can we effectively combat the desires of the flesh so we're better able to quieten our immediate desires and pursue our deepest desires, to pursue God unhindered? Because we can begin to do that. And how we begin to do that is what we're going to talk about tonight. If you don't know me, my name is Tim. Uh, I'm a part of the family here, uh, and I love being a part of this family. I love what God's doing in this place. Welcome to Online Church. Hi, Olive. Olive's my daughter. 
Uh, tonight is the last week, as Mike said, on a series uh, on John Mike Comer's excellent book, Live No Lies. And we've journeyed with uh, the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the, de- and the devil. And just to remind you, Comer argues that the strategy here is that there are deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And today we're going to finish up by talking about flesh warfare. How do we begin to resist the disordered desires of the flesh and ultimately working to bring us to ruin? But first, we have to make a caveat. Because, what we're, when, because we are talking about what we can do to fight the desires of the flesh, we have to start by making it clear that what we're talking about here is not salvation, but formation. Whenever we talk about what we do in church, it can sometimes make us feel uneasy. And that's because we very rightly don't want to accidentally communicate that we can do anything at all to save ourselves. That would be, as the Lutherans in the Rome know, preaching a gospel of works and not of grace. But to throw the baby out with the bathwater to say that what we do in this life is therefore meaningless. As Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. What we're not talking about is doing in order to earn God's acceptance. Earning is an attitude of getting from God. We are talking about what we can do, the effort we can put in to fight the flesh, take on the character of Jesus. Effort is an action towards and in pursuit of God. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. We're talking about formation, not salvation tonight. Back to Peter. About Peter's failure in his fight against the flesh, in the garden and the events to come, Dallas Willard, we're going to hear a bit from him tonight, comments, all Peter's most sincere and best intentions, even though specifically alerted by Jesus' prediction and warning of only a few hours earlier, were not able to withstand the automatic tendencies and activated by the circumstances. Peter's best intentions could not overcome his automatic tendencies towards the desires of the flesh. And I think Willard here helpfully names what it's like to struggle against the desires of the flesh. Despite our best intentions, our flesh feels like it's running on automatic. It feels like it's our default setting. It feels like it's running on autopilot. And if that's the case, how did it get there? Well, there's this sense of the human condition that before we chose sin, sin is already there. King David bemoans in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. Willard elsewhere says that we are formed in sin. Our character and its body is set against God and God's ways. And as we look about us, it seems like we find it pretty much running on its own. In a fallen world, giving in to the desires of flesh is like our default setting. It's how we've been wired over the course of our lives as we grapple with the effects of our own sin and the sin of those around us. It's been reinforced again and again and again over the course of our lives until it becomes second nature. Why is this? Well, in Live No Lies, John Mark references the law of returns. And it's a simple uh, law that uh, what you sow, you reap for every cause and effect, and that effect is often disproportionate to the cause. The flesh is running on autopilot because we've been sowing the flesh all our lives. So the more we sow, the more we reap. 
And the more we sow the desires of the flesh, the more the flesh forms us in its particular direction. That's the thing with something like autopilot is it's heading in a particular direction. We sow anger, we reap hate, bitterness, and unforgiveness. We sow lust, we reap adultery. We sow laziness, we reap apathy. We sow greed, we reap abuse. The desires of the flesh are not satisfied with a little chunk of our life. They must have our whole life. And the more we give in, the more we become a slave, the more its hold on us is not enough. This is, as Mike said last night, how addiction happens. People don't have affairs overnight. It starts with sowing little choices to pull away, to resent, to believe deceptive ideas about your spouse, to choose what you think your rights are from your spouse over your responsibilities to them. You sow little choices here and there and you give in to the desires of your flesh and suddenly you've nuked your marriage and the ripple effects and the shockwave wrecks havoc in your family and in your church. It's the little quote-unquote harmless sins that are forming us towards what we may consider to be greater sins. J.C. Ryle has this absolute zinger of a quote. Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. Habits like trees are strengthened by age. The older, the stronger, the longer they have held possession, the harder they'll be to cast out. They grow with our growth and strengthen with our strength. Every fresh act of sin lessens fear and remorse, hardens our heart, blunts the edge of our conscience and increases our evil inclination. You reap what you sow. This is serious. The desires of our flesh are forming us in a particular direction and that direction is away from the will and desire of God. Paul explains that direction in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, adultery, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living this little life will not inherit the kingdom of God. The desires of the flesh, enabled by deceptive ideas and normalized in a sinful society, is forming you into a certain kind of person, and the results are slavery and addiction. But friends, God wants to form you in a different direction, into the image of his son, Jesus. Paul goes on, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Each characteristic you see there listed there, you see an abundance in the life of Jesus. More than maybe any, well, more than any human ever. The Holy Spirit is forming us towards the character of Jesus in our lives. And the result is not slavery, it's life and its abundance. So the war between the desires of the flesh and the spirit within us is a war of formation. Two opposing forces within us trying to form us in a particular direction, into becoming a particular kind of person. It's a war over the kind of person you become in this life. It's a war over how much of the kingdom of God can permeate your life and your character like yeast in a dough. Sarah knows all about it if you want to talk to her afterwards. It's a war about how much the enemy can corrupt your character, your life and your calling. It's a war of formation. But remember, it's not a war of salvation. It's about who you become in this life. So if there's these opposing desires at play, the flesh has been running on autopilot, forming us in a certain direction, 
The spirit that God gives us when we believe is forming us in another much more ideal direction towards the person and character of Jesus. Who gets the say in how it ends up? Who gets the say in who we become? I've become convinced that it's actually us. We do. We get to choose. We can tip the balance one way or the other. And not by one big grand choice to choose the flesh or the spirit, but by our little everyday choices. Our choices have power. For choice to be real and genuine, it must carry some power. I could choose for the crows to win the flag next year, but that's not a real choice because that choice is not within my power to make. And if what we saw last night is it's maybe not even God's power to make, right? It was diabolical. But I can choose what I eat for breakfast. I can choose how I treat my body. I can choose what I do with my smartphone. These are choices that are under my power to make. And we know that choices are powerful because one selfless decision can transform a community for the better and one selfish decision can destroy a community. We do not make our choices in isolation. And so sin has turned our choices into both a gift and a kind of curse. We have a choice and it carries power. So why would God let us have it? Well, he lets us have it because he loves us. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had a choice. Scripture tells us they chose names for the animal. They were given directions about what trees to eat and which ones not to, and options indicate choice. Choice precedes sin. God gave humanity the power of choice out of love. Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend, they have this wonderful book. They have boundaries and everything, but particularly boundaries in marriage has this line, love preserves choice. Think about it. Love preserves choice. We know this is true because the absence of choice in a relationship is slavery. And we're not slaves. We're adopted children of God. God gave us a choice because he loves us. And he gave us that choice like all good parents do, in the hope that we would use that choice to choose life and flourishing and to ultimately choose him. For choice to be real, it must carry power, but it must even carry the power not to choose God. So we have this power to choose and therefore have a degree of responsibility for our choices because they're ours. To quote the great philosopher Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. Our choices have the power to tip the formation war towards the flesh or towards the spirit, to sow the desires of the flesh or to sow the desires of the spirit. Paul says it better in Galatians 6-7. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please God, the spirit, from that spirit will reap eternal life. All this to say, we have a say in the kind of person that we become. It's our choice whether we sow by the Spirit or sow by the desires of the flesh. But each choice is forming us into a kind of person and the kind of person we become. So what kind of person do you want to become? Most of us would have an idea of the kind of person that we want to become. Often we cobble different uh, characteristics uh, and behaviours of people that we think are really great and really cool. Uh, Everybody probably does this. But if we follow Jesus, we have an advantage. We have a blueprint for the greatest person to ever live. And not only is he a blueprint, we have access to his friend's accounts of how he lived his life so we can see what he did and how he did it. So we have access to his lifestyle. 
Not only do we have access to his lifestyle, we have access to Jesus himself through the Spirit. And not only do we have access to him, but we have the Spirit within us that is trying to lead us away from the desires of flesh and towards the desires of the Spirit. So we have the blueprint, we have the instructions, we have access to the builder and someone down from corporate to get this project happening on the ground. We have everything that we need. But love preserves choice. So God won't violate our choice and make us into a kind of person we don't want to become. Even if that person is in, maybe even if it's into the image of Jesus. Nor can we in any way become like Jesus on our own. Without the Spirit's help and power, we need the Spirit to walk by the Spirit. We can't do it without God, but He won't do it without us. The power of our choice isn't enough to change us. Our willpower isn't enough. But neither will God change us without us. So we need to find a way to collaborate the little power of our choice with the infinite power of the Spirit to become the kind of person we want to become, to become like Jesus. And this is where the spiritual practices come in. For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been imitating the lifestyle of Jesus and giving themselves to practices that use the power of our choice to position our body, mind, heart, and soul in the power of the Spirit. We need to use our willpower to position ourselves within the Spirit's power and thereby reform our body, heart, mind, and soul and turn the autopilot within us away from the desires of the flesh and towards the desires of the Spirit, towards the person and character of Jesus. For years and years growing up in church, uh, every single sermon seemed to end with, you should read your Bible and pray, and, uh, which never really made sense to me. I found it so hard to do, and, often, and I didn't understand why it was even that important, until I realized that it wasn't about doing the right thing, but it was about positioning. It was about where I was placing my body, my heart, my mind, and my soul, which aren't as disconnected from each other as we tend to think. What we do with our bodies impacts our heart, our mind, and our soul, and what we do with our mind impacts our, heart, our body, heart, and soul, and so on and so on. As Willard says, we are finite, limited to our bodies. So the spiritual practices can't be carried out except as our body and its parts are surrendered in precise ways and definite actions to God. Here we find the positive role of the body in the process of redemption as we choose those uses of the body that advance the spiritual life. Spiritual practices are about alignment. My body surrendered to God. My heart with God's heart. My will with God's will. My little bit of willpower with the enormity of the Spirit's power. The spiritual practices aren't in and of themselves transformative. They're transformative because they connect us in tangible ways with the God who is transformative. They humble us. They help us to be honest with ourselves. They help us to surrender our desires to God. If our choices have power, we need to collaborate that little willpower we have with the Spirit's power. It can actually change us. In that sense, our lives are like a group project with the Trinity, where we're that person who basically does nothing but show up and get carried to an A by the rest of the team. If anyone's in uni, they understand that. The spiritual practices, as we choose to give themselves to us, are how God reforms our lives, away from the desires of flesh, the desires of the Spirit, into the image of Jesus. Spiritual practices are therefore flesh warfare, Let's look at one in more detail. Let's look at fasting. Fasting is starving the body of food for a period of time. Jesus did it most famously before going toe-to-toe with the devil in the wilderness. But fasting before sundown, so breakfast, fasting breakfast and lunch, was a regular part of the Jewish faith. Fasting is counterformation, 
for the desires of the flesh, particularly in the West where we formed our body to think that we are dying if we don't have three meals a day. Fasting is counterformation because it teaches us what's really inside of us when we don't mask our inner life by eating. Richard Foster says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the thing that controls us. We cover up what's inside of us with food and other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. Pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. First, we'll rationalize that the anger is due to our hunger, but then we realize that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. We can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. I try to fast twice a week because I'm self-aware enough to know that I eat my feelings. Just going to be honest with you. When those feelings come out, I can't... And when I fast, those feelings come out. I can't hide from them anymore. Unfortunately, neither can my family. (laughs) Fasting is really... That means fasting is really hard for me. And fasting is really hard for me because I've sowed this pattern of feel sad, eat bad, basically for the last 20 years. And 20-year pattern usually doesn't resolve overnight. It's going to take time to reform my body, mind, and how it uses food. And this means that I'm awful at fasting. I often end a fast earlier than I set it out to. But does that mean that I should stop? Absolutely not. It means I need it more. By giving myself to it, I'm training myself to be comfortable with hunger and self-denial, and I'm positioning myself within the Spirit's power to begin to deal with the desires of the flesh and how they manifest within my body. Fasting positions you in the Spirit's power like not much else. Willard argues that fast, Jesus fasted before going toe-to-toe with the devil, not so his, he was going to be tempted at his weakest, but so that he was at his strongest. Jesus' body may have been weak, but the desires of the flesh in his body were weaker, and his spirit was at its strongest, most aligned, most positioned within the will of God. Fasting is just one example of a spiritual practice where we can use the power of our choice in this case, the choice to not eat food for a period of time, to position ourselves where the Spirit can do its work. I'm bad at it now, but I won't be forever. And every time I give myself to the practice, I tip the autopilot of my life one degree towards the formation of the Spirit and the work it wants to do with my life. I tip my life one degree towards, closer towards the person of Jesus. And this is because work, life works a lot like compound interest. Mike talks about compound interest spirituality all the time. If you don't know about compound interest, I'm going to try to explain it to you. Don't take too much. <laughs> I'm not, a, not good at maths. Uh, it's a financial concept that essentially describes how time multiplies money exponentially. Small investments and the interest that's paid back on them uh, over time can create huge wealth. But it's not about how much you start with or how much you put in. The most important factor is when you start. Likewise, our choices have power, but time multiplies exponentially the power of those choices. We seem to know this intuitively when you're trying to learn or master something. We seem to forget it's even a thing when it comes to the spiritual life. Think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. People are not born able to respond to the demands of reality in this way. This is cultivated over a lifetime of collaboration with the Spirit. But if we are persistent, as time multiplies our choices, we will find that not only desires of the flesh fade, 
as a desire to walk in step with the Spirit grows, we'll find that walking by the Spirit actually becomes our own autopilot. I may suck at fasting right now, and even if I never get better, fasting is still worth it. It's worth keeping on doing badly. Because if I stick at it and I collaborate my choices with the Spirit of God over a lifetime, that by the time I'm old, there's a better chance than not that I will become an old man whose life bears the fruit of the Spirit for all to see. And the change from who I was 15 years ago to who I am now to who I will become will bring glory to God because only he could bring about that kind of transformation in me. But God wanted to do it with me, not for me. My question for you tonight is who do you want to become? Who do you want to become? If you're young, you have the multiplying power of time on your side. You can start now in collaborating with the Spirit's power to become like Jesus. Think about who you could become and how God could use a person like that if you started now. If you're old and even though time might not have the power it once did, remember this is not about salvation but about formation. So where can you start? Start small, start somewhere. So what are the desires of your flesh that are forming you towards slavery? It's a question that only you can answer. And what spiritual practices do you need to begin to position yourself within the Spirit's power to form you towards Jesus, to wage war on your flesh? If you don't know much about spiritual practices, I have three copies of Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline you can have. So I'll put them down front, you can come grab them. It's a great book. But each week we've been uh, trying to finish our, uh, in this series, we've been trying to finish with a spiritual practice. So if you don't know what that spiritual practice you need to do in order to fight the desires of your flesh, maybe begin with fasting if your health permits it. Just breakfast and lunch for a day and position your body, your mind, your heart and your spirit within the Spirit's power. Now Peter couldn't do what he wanted to do and stay awake with Jesus. Never abandon him, never deny him. So he fell asleep, attacked the soldier, ran away and denied Jesus three times. That sounds like a bad night to me. We'll out again. But God was not done with Simon Peter. He would make a rock of him yet. In the hours and days that followed, Peter was subjected to experiences that synthesized what he had gathered from his life and years of companionship with Jesus on the road and drove it deep into the governing tendencies of his body. He watched his friend, who had declared to be the Messiah, die in humiliation, after three days, he realized he'd risen from the dead. He encountered him in the flesh. He goes back to fishing and is met and restored by Jesus. Three times being asked, Simon, Simon Peter, do you love me? And three times Jesus commissions him, look after my sheep. And then some 40 days after he was unable to wait up and pray for Jesus in the garden, Peter waits for 10 days in an upper room for God to pour out his spirit in Pentecost. Willard again says it better. That old hand that automatically reached for the sword to kill. The legs that spontaneously took flight. The detestable tongue that forgot its own inspired confession of the Messiah. And as with a life of its own, denied all relationship to Jesus, cursing God to prove it. Now all were of an entirely different character. Peter had changed. The experiences of being with Jesus for three years have been catalyzed in those 50 days after the resurrection in his body and in his character to the point where the automatic tendencies in his flesh and his desires had weakened. 
Those 50 days aligned and positioned his spirit within God's spirit. And Peter, the man who constantly seemed to put his foot in it, became the kind of man who could stand up at Pentecost and preach a sermon of power in which 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. Peter still occasionally put his foot in it. But Jesus built his church on the rock that was Peter. And by the end of his life, legend have it, he was able to do what he said he would do in the garden or before the garden and die with Jesus, asking to be crucified like his Messiah at the end of his life, who asked to be crucified. This is what walking with Jesus did in Peter's life. And the change from fisherman to apostle is literally quite staggering. Tonight, I wonder, what will God do with you if you use the choice that He gave you because He loves you to choose Him? Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.